This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. In case you haven't heard, uh, talk about hydro has uh, been front and center here in this province for the last number of months, really. Uh, we've talked, of course, with our friends at Global TV about some of the problems that have been going on with hydro and some of the possible solutions. You've met some of the people that have been influenced by this. Uh, we've talked with the Premier about this. Uh, we've talked with uh, the opposition leaders about this. Uh, Patrick Brown and Andrew Horvath have been on this program. Well, Ontario has come up with a plan that they say is going to deal with this. And joining us to talk about this is uh, the Energy Minister for the Province of Ontario, Glenn Tebow. Uh, Mr. Minister, it's great to have you with us oh, here today. Great to be here with you this morning. Good to have you here in town. I know that you're going to be meeting with the mayor a little bit later on. Yep. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the solution. Um, we have talked ad nauseum for months and months and months about the problems. Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the rearview mirror talking about what has gone on here. And, and maybe just for context, we need to talk a little bit about that and why some of these policies were developed in the first place. Well, I, and, and I'll, I'll be as quick as I can on this, but it is, you know, the electricity file was kicked to the curb by by parties of all colors and all stripes for decades. And, um, you know, it, it came to a head in 2003 when we had the blackouts. And you know what? We just said we couldn't we couldn't operate that any that way anymore. So we've had to rebuild our system, and that cost billions of dollars, $50 billion to be exact. Um, part of the issue, I think, is, you know, we're hearing a, a lot from our opposition colleagues, you know, the, the bad contracts that they call them, renewable energy. In my opinion, the what wasn't the problem. Renewable energy is the right thing to do. It's created jobs, uh, 42,000 of them in this province. It's actually clean. We haven't had smog days, but it was the how. How we procured those resources, I think, uh, when you look back, is part of the problem. We had sole-sourced contracting. We were very specific in our contracting, which eliminated competitive tension. When, so we changed that, and now we're seeing our renewable energy, wind, solar, biomass, um, coming in with rates that are significantly lower, that are some of the lowest rates we've ever seen, uh, not only in Ontario, but right around uh, Canada and North America. So, you know, that was how we got uh, here. Um, but, you know, part of it was having 20-year contracts um, on on assets that can last us 30, 35 years. So rather than paying that upfront cost, we did some heavy lifting and looking at ways that we could extend that mortgage, so to speak. And that's part of how we got to this fair hydro plan, bringing us with a 25% reduction. All right. What uh, both opposition leaders have told us on this program, uh, Mr. Minister, is, uh, you know what, we want to see those contracts. We want to be able to rip those up. Is, is that an option? Is that something you've looked at? So, you know, th that's the easy thing to say, to say we're going to rip up contracts. There'd be billions of dollars in, in lost, <laughs> you know, lost legal fees and, you know, these lost contracts. It would cost us a lot more. And so we're, we're not saying we need to rip up these contracts. What we're saying is, um, you know, the way we're moving forward with our procurement has changed dramatically. Um, the way we're making sure that we look at our procurement um, has changed dramatically. And we're not necessarily in a need for power right now. So we don't necessarily need more power. We just need to ensure that we, we utilize what we have accurately, efficiently. And that's part of what we're going to continue to do. With the 25 percent reduction that we announced last week, which will come by summer uh, with, with legislation. We are going to look at ways that we can continue to take costs out of the system through market reform, time of use planning, everything that we can do to continue to help keep rates low. That was part of the frustration, and I know you've heard this before, but I want you to comment on that. The, the, the time of use plan was announced. It was say, hey, this is going to be fabulous for energy conservation. Uh, we want you to run the dishwasher at night instead of at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We want you to do your laundry later on in the evening. And, and most of us, many of us did that. 
but we still saw a rise in the rates. It was a very frustrating circumstance. Yeah, and and so I understand that. And and let's 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 be clear about time of use. It is working. We have seen a five percent reduction in our peak um, hour usage because of time of use. And by having that amount of consumption, we don't need or conservation. Sorry, we don't need to build new generation because five percent overall. Um, let's say it's a thousand megawatts. Um, that's like not having to build a nuclear unit, which costs us billions and billions of dollars. So conservation actually helps the entire system. So when you conserve and everyone else conserves, it actually saves the overall system from having to build new capacity. And when we don't have to build new capacity, we keep our costs down. Did the rates continue to go up? Yes, they did because of many other reasons. Part of it is part, you know, of having all of those assets that we built before um, on 20-year contracts. That means if we're looking at it like a mortgage, we're paying it off sooner, but our rates were higher. Our bills were higher. And that's how we had our electricity bills, which were our mortgage rates. Um, Those were actually a lot higher than what they they could have been. So we had to really think this through and look at our global adjustment, make adjustments to that to ensure that we can bring forward this rate reduction with a few other structural changes that will actually make sure that this is a long-lasting rate reduction. Because we we seem to have uh, hit a, a wall right now when it comes to uh, to production and 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 generating uh, power right now, and it seems as if we're generating more than we need right now. Does does that mean that there's a moratorium on on new development there on new projects? So we we don't have a moratorium. Um, I did cancel the last large renewable procurement because we didn't need the energy. But we do have um, Pickering, for example, that's going to come offline by 2024. That's 3,000 megawatts that we're need going to replace. And you know when when people talk about you know generation, it you don't build a generating station in a year. It's the same thing with our wind farms and our solar farms. You can't build them in a year. There's a whole process that they need to go through with environmental assessments with you know, the right to construct, and then you got to get the equipment made. You know, Tilsonburg and many other places around here make, uh, make great equipment. So it takes anywhere between five and six years. So we need to start thinking about the next long-term energy plan, which is what we're going to do, but what type of procurement we're going to need. There are a lot of questions and uh, you know about uh, you know how much power we produce and are we overproducing and are we selling it to Michigan and New York at at lower costs? Um, well, we do, but there's a really good explanation for that. And Which at the is? end of the well, so at the end of the year, we make two hundred and thirty million dollars. That's what we made in 2015. For, and so I will explain it, like you said, which is. So well, you know why? As yeah, a consumer, as a consumer, and and you're from Sudbury, and yep. Sudbury are like the people from Missouri. Show me. Yeah. Right? They, they want bottom line answers like this. So you're, yep. you're, not, you're used to this. Yep. They're going to say, well, okay, if you're generating it, it's costing X number of dollars, and you're selling it to our neighbors for pennies on the dollar, we're getting hit with a loss here. That's that's the perception. There. That's the perception, and so thanks. I, I will explain it, and happy to, because yes, uh, Sudbury and Hamilton are also very much alike, right, in terms of that. So we have a system operator who looks at our entire system within the province. It's a $21 billion sector, the energy sector, electricity sector in Ontario. They've got to account for every single light, every single microphone, TV, radio, you name it. They've got to account for all of the energy that's used in this province. And they've got to judge that on every five-minute intervals. They've got it down to a science. So when the Leafs and the Habs are playing, they can figure out, okay, when the Leafs score, there's going to be an increase in electricity usage because 
everyone runs to the washroom, flushes the toilet, and every municipal power uh, or municipal water um, you know plant ha- fires up. So they've got to account for all of that. So they're going to say between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. on this day, we need to uh, have 18,000 megawatts of power to make sure all of those lights, everything stays on. But for some reason, um, 17,800 megawatts gets consumed. We can't produce less, otherwise we're back to brownouts and, and, and blackouts. So we produce a little bit more to meet North American electricity reliability standards. It's an actual organization. We need to do this. So we have 200 megawatts of extra power. We had to produce this. Do we say we just let that disappear because we had to produce it anyways? Or do we sell it to our neighbors who could use it? So we sell it to them at that instant at, yes, below cost. Because we would have lost it anyways. It was like a byproduct. I don't want to minimize it, but it was like a byproduct. But when Michigan or New York or our neighbors need power as well, and they buy it from us at market rates, we make money. So our opposition colleagues only tell you one side of that story. At the end of the year, in 2015, we made $230 million. In 2014, it was 250 In uh, 2013, I believe it was about 235 That's a lot better than where we were in 2002 when we were spending $700 million to import energy. So we've changed our system. We've got a market. We are now exporting, and we're making sure that we produce as close as we can um, to making sure that we're not overproducing anything more. We're not making more than we're saying, oh, let's just make it. We're making it to make sure that we meet our own demand. You're talking about contracts, and that's obviously been the the focus of a lot of the uh, criticism we've heard from some of the opposition parties there. Uh, Going forward, as you say, Pickering is going to go offline in the the not-too-distant future right now. Uh, you're going to have to make up for that. We we understand that. But is that going to be done with those existing contracts that were negotiated with those long terms? Or, or, or are you starting with a, a clean slate here? So those those existing places are um, into contracts. And so we're going to look at having new contracts. And, you know, for example, wind contracts now have come in at the lowest price they ever have. You know, in some instances, we're talking about 6.6 uh, cents a kilowatt hour in, in some, uh, some places. So the way um, our capacity auctions, or sorry, our market auctions have have changed, uh, will ensure that we bring forward the bre- the best cost for our rate payers. Um, you know, when we talk about those contracts that we signed with part of the Green Energy Act, um, that's the, the, the what that we could have done better, and we are doing better. We're making sure that all of our contracts are in the best interest of rate payers, and we're going to continue to find ways to do that, to bring the costs out, because when you're looking at the Fair Hydro Plan that we announced last week and the 25% reduction that everyone's going to get, this is the single largest electricity rate reduction that we've ever uh, done in Ontario's history. So we understand that we continue to need to take costs out of the system to keep our rates down. And so we've, we, we're also holding rates to the cost of inflation for the next four years while we move forward with our long-term energy plan. That will pull um, those costs out of the system as well. You, you meant, obviously, we mentioned that you're representing a riding up in Sudbury. Uh, those costs are extravagant. Is a 25% reduction going to help? So in, in places like Sudbury, we're, we're on average like Hamilton, like Toronto, like most other municipalities. It's the focus. Folks that are in the rural parts of our province or in, you know, some of the northern parts, the easiest way for me to explain that, downtown Hamilton, you have um, 500 people on one pole and they share that cost. In other parts of the province, you have 500 poles and one person. 
And so those are the people that we've been seeing on, you know, on the news and hearing on the news about some of the costs. We've increased what's called the triple RP, so the Rural Remote uh, Rate Protection Plan. So we've increased that. So as of January 1st, people were getting a $60 rebate if they were only Hydro One R2 customers. Everyone else didn't get that $60 rebate, but those R2 customers were still significantly higher than you and I. And so one of the things that we did is we've increased it. We've harmonized the triple RP to make sure that that distribution cost um, is going to be equitable for everyone. So we, for example, that our two customer, if they're a 2000 kilowatt an hour home, so that's a larger farmhouse, let's say that's heated with electric heat. um, They're going to see their distribution rate on average drop by about 135 bucks to bring them to a $38 distribution rate. The R1 customers in some of the smaller towns will see that their distribution rate drop to $38 and seven other um, utilities in our province will see that type of reduction to get them online with their distribution rate to make it equitable across the province, hence the title Fair Hydro Plan. Uh, so that's that, that seems a sense of fairness, but who pays for that? So we are in a good financial place right now as a government. I know uh, Minister Suso is talking about uh, you know how we're on track to uh, balance our books and, and do that by next year. We are actually, the way that Triple RP program worked before in the Ontario Electricity Support Program, and there's a new affordability fund, so let's talk about that. We're pulling that off of the rate base because those are social programs and those are government choices to, to help those vulnerable people. So we, the way you had it before, it was just ratepayers. It was ratepayers. So which was a smaller number of people. Smaller number we of people. More. And so that was part of it. So your regula- regulation rate on your bill was higher. So we're pulling that from the rate base and putting it onto the tax base. And so that will lower your rates, um, your electricity rates. We've put that on the tax base. The cost of that is $2.5 billion over three years. And in that is included that new $200 million affordability fund. The concern a lot of people have is going forward. Now, I know that you've guaranteed when the Premier was with us last week, she said that that this is going to be tied to inflation. Any increases are going to be tied to inflation for the next four years, I think she said, wasn't it? Okay. Uh, Everybody's concerned that, okay, that means in year five, everything goes right through the roof again. So I I know you can't predict the future with any certainty. Nobody can. But but are we concerned going forward now? Because we're talking about new generation, et cetera, just around that same time. Yeah. um, So it's a, a very good question. And the way I would look at and explain that to you is, you know, our 2010 long-term energy plan had our cost for electricity a lot higher than where we were right now. Our 2013 plan also had costs higher than where we are now. We as a government have continued to find ways to pull costs out of the system. And I was mentioning that earlier, you know, we pulled out $3.9 billion from, uh, you know, the renegotiation of the Samsung agreement, the fit contracts, right? So renegotiating those, finding better pricing for those have actually saved us $1.9 billion. So it's my job as the Minister of energy with within my ministry and using all of my bureaucrats to continue to find ways and using stakeholders as well to pull those costs out of the system. So we're you know going to continue to find those costs to take out. Part of it is market reform, changing the way that we've always done electricity. You know, I'll use Niagara Falls for an example. We you know we tap the energy from the falls, we put it on the transmission highway, and those you know comes to the distribution within our uh, our our uh, within our homes. We're going to change that and change the way our market is looking at. So by 2021, that can actually save us $200 million. Finding those ways will continue to keep those costs out of the system and do our best to keep everything at the rate of inflation. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
the uh, have covered the uh, frustration and uh, the concern that many people in Hamilton and Burlington have been talking about about school closures and uh, the provincial policy uh, that looks at this. And uh, it, there's a, a real conundrum that's going on here right now, where there are growing areas of communities that need new schools and just aren't being serviced. And at the same time, the existing policy essentially says, "Well, you want to open one, you got to close one someplace else, or sometimes two. And the criteria for that has been very frustrating. Uh, we've had a number of parent groups from the Burlington situation uh, on the program here to express uh, their concerns about this. Well, the uh, the battle went to Queen's Park yesterday, and uh, Marianne Mead Ward, who was the city councillor for Ward 2 in Burlington, was there with uh, some of those concerned parents. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Thanks for coming in. Good to have you here. It's great to be here, and uh, and I really appreciate your attention on this. It couldn't be more important. Well, and this is not a new battle. I mean, we've been going on like this for years and years in, in, in these cities where we've looked at schools, and many of the schools in the Hamilton area have gone through this, and, and we've talked to some of the parents about the, the angst and frustration uh, and there's there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? This isn't just NIMBY. This is just a, hey, don't close the school because that's where I went to or that's where my kids go to. No, this uh, when you close a school, you tear a hole in the heart of the community, and that's what we're seeing. Each school, you know, I can speak about all seven schools in Burlington. Every single one of them has something unique and different. It is a vital place for those neighborhoods, and we now have two schools, including the one in my ward, uh, on the chopping block. And this is driven by funding formula. And that's provincial policy. So it's a bit of a game of political hot potato where the boards and the trustees in, in particular are doing the work of the province, closing these schools, taking the heat for it. But really, they're implementing provincial policy. And so we went as a group to Queen's Park. And I went in my capacity as the parent of two two kids in grade 11. You know, I'm I'm a member of the program accommodation review in Burlington for Burlington Central High School. How do those so, meetings explain how those <clears throat> meetings go? Because <laughs> we, we went through this in Hamilton some years ago with the high schools and and, and the frustration that we felt because we talked with members of the board of education at that time, Marianne, and, and of course some of the parent groups. Uh, two of the special needs schools were on the slate for closure and, and in fact did close as it turns out. Uh, we're just going to reintegrate them in back into the system. And I, I asked the board at the time, I said, well, the reason you instituted these schools in the first place is because them in the ordinary system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So what's changed? Well, it, no, so it's a financial thing. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, the very first issue here is problem definition. We are given as 14 parents, two from every school, the task of, quote-unquote, solving the problem of 1,800. So the the province and the boards can count how many students fit in a classroom, they can count how many students actually are in a classroom, and then that kicks out some number of how many should be there. This is not based on educational outcomes, it's not based on programming, it's just what you can count. And it, it that's part of the problem. And so we are given the task to solve the problem of 1,800 empty spaces. And how are you going to do that? Well, if this school has 1,400 and these two schools together have 1,500, look, let's close them. And that's the instant solution. There's no creativity to that. There's no uh, discussion of what these schools mean to the students, what these schools mean to the community. You're just forced, really, as a as a group of 14 parents to pick which of you is going to be voted off the island. <laughs> you know, It's a game of survivor. And it has across the province. It has pitted communities against communities, parents against parents, school against school. It is a system set up to fail. And the start of it 
is that the province decided to do funding based on students and then they eliminated what they call top-up funding for those empty spaces. And it's a broken funding formula. It's a broken program accommodation review process. So our message to Queen's Park was stop this. No matter what outcome is produced in Burlington, a broken system does not produce anything but a broken outcome. And so we want the process stopped, the problems fixed, the funding formula fixed, so we can have a proper discussion about what's in the best interest of students and what's in the best interest of communities. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. I mean, these policies at the provincial level have been in place for years. Uh, and, and I guess we're at the point now where enough is enough. And, and the, maybe the basic reason for this, now you represent Ward 2, which is the downtown area of Burlington, yep. is that when you look at this policy, which has been in place going back as far as I can remember, uh, I was on city council back in the late 90s and into the early part of the, the new century here, and we were dealing with this all the time, especially with the, with downtown schools, mm-hmm. is that it is completely in conflict with the, the policy of the province's places to grow policy, which Absolutely. is about infill. Absolutely. In other words, you want to encourage people to move back down to the core, but... Don't have kids because there's not going to be any schools for them. Yeah, I mean, what, I, well, and that that's that's the the biggest frustration about Central is that if that school closes, it will drive families out of the downtown at a time when the province is trying to encourage and the city is trying to encourage families to live in downtown centers. You're absolutely right. Well, and, we and we can spend of, another hour talking about some of the condo pro- programs that are being we, developed. Yes, down we there. could. <laughs> but we, we'll, we'll save that for another day. But they're coming. You know that in some way, yeah. shape, or form. So you're going to need this this educational environment here. You you absolutely need it. And the other thing that is it would happen in that specific school case, and I can speak about the impact on all schools, it would be negative, but you know, that is 92% of those students live in the walking catchment mm-hmm. at Central. It is the highest in the city. If that school closed, you immediately split the classroom up so the kids across the street from where we live and my son lives will go all the way to the west of the city. Um, his friends, he will go to the east of the city to a new school, 100% of them bust. At a time, the city and the province are trying desperately to get people out of their cars, promoting walkability. We know it's better for everybody's physical and mental health, especially kids with special needs with autism. It is better for them to be walking. That physical exercise is critical. And so one of our messages to Queen's Park was, how can you stand by and watch these schools be put on the chopping block because of a broken funding formula in direct violation of provincial policy on a whole range of issues. Now, their answer to this, because uh, we have talked to, to the boards of education about this, and, and they try to be defensive, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, is that they'll say, well, you know, that school, and we'll use Central as an example, but uh, we've got one here in Hamilton, John M. McDonald, right across from the First Ontario Centre. It's in the same boat. It's slated for closure. I mean, how many, it's, well, I don't want to get into how many kids are there. But they'll say, well, you know, it's in disrepair. You know, it needs to get this done and this done. Well, whose fault is that? Yeah, so this is rewarding neglect. Central School in Burlington, architecturally, it has good bones. It's not going anywhere. It's a a solid school. It turns 100 in 1922. So think of the irony of that school being on the chopping block in our 150th year of Canada celebrating our foundations, right? And this school, you walk in it and you see our veterans' hallway 
Our soldiers who went off to fight for this country were educated in that school, in those classrooms. We have pictures of them on the wall. You can't replace that experience of actually walking the hallways that our veterans walked. The fact that we're a couple of blocks from City Hall, those students serve hot chocolate and to all of our veterans after our Remembrance Day ceremony. These are things it, that you can't count. What's the price on that? It, it's, it's actually priceless. Those experiences that will be lost. And this process sets people up to count what can be counted rather than what counts. And it's the experience, it's the education of the students, and none of that is what is actually on the table during our park discussions. We've had four now as a group of parents. Everybody is frustrated. I'm hearing it from every single school about how frustrating the discussion is. There's no creative problem solving around community partnerships. It is a broken system, and it, and we need the PAR and the school closures to stop across Ontario. This isn't just a Burlington problem, and it's not just a rural problem. That's the focus that uh, was at Queen's Park. This is all across the GTA. This is 905. This is Hamilton. It's everywhere. Well, and we've seen it here. I mean, I can always relate it to the Hamilton experiences. I mean, they, they closed the school years ago right by the stadium at Scott Park. Don't need it anymore. Enrollment's yeah. down. Uh, now, and then five years ago, they said, whoa, wait a second, population shifts. They had to buy it back. Yeah. And, that's, and guess I, who paid for that? Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> we did. Uh, the taxpayers are on the hook for all of this. And the uh, that's one of the biggest issues with the process is the changing data. You know, in Burlington, we got an initial set of numbers for five-year renewal costs. And two months later, days before our first meeting, we got another huge set of numbers, $23 million swing. How does that happen? You know, how, how does your five-year renewal cost change by that factor? And so we question the enrollment data. The enrollment uh, projections are based on Statistics Canada data, which looks backwards, doesn't look forward. It doesn't account for families living in condos. We know they are. It's happening in Toronto. It will come to Burlington in the GTA because the cost of housing, single-family housing, mm-hmm. is so expensive. So, But the formula doesn't account for that. It is backward-looking, not forward-looking. So these are just some of the things that we've said, is that if you've got bad information, incomplete information, in a system that is fundamentally broken, how can you possibly make the best decision for students, for communities? You can't. And, and the short answer from the province is going to be, well, then yeah, okay, Central, okay, you made a strong point. You can keep it open. You're going to have to close another one. Well, yeah, and that's why and we the, want... And the answer is no, 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 no. It's, no. It's, the, it's the formula that they're using. Yeah, that, and that's, that was our key message to Queen's Park yesterday as a group of residents from Burlington who stood with over a million members that are part of the Ontario Alliance Against School Closures from across this province to say any decision delivered out of a broken process is not going to be the best one. It is not going to be the right one for communities. So we want the process stopped to make it fixed. Even if Central is saved... Of course, we're going to be happy about that. We think that's the right decision is to keep that school open. But we don't want it to be at the expense of somebody else in our community. A how many, bad how many process schools, makes how many a bad schools decision. are right in limbo right now? How many schools in Burlington? There are four uh, that have been named as potential. So the initial recommendation was Central and Lester B. Pearson. The, through the discussions at the, at the uh, park committee, the parents have said, well, maybe we also need to look at Nelson. Maybe we also need to look at Bateman. They're both schools that are in the south of Burlington, yep. 
uh, where the enrollment numbers are are lower. And those two schools, Nelson and Bateman, are within 1.9 kilometers of each other. So they're very geographically close. So the the 14 parents on the the park committee thought maybe we need to look at other options. But as we started doing that, we realized is the relentless focus on solving the 1,800 empty pupil spaces even the right conversation? And I think people are saying that's not even the right conversation. The right conversation is how do we properly fund education to make sure we get the best student outcomes. And that isn't even part of our discussions because it's not part of the process. See, we're in a similar situation here in Hamilton. I mentioned John A. McDonald right across from the uh, the arena. Uh, and that's slated for closure. Downtown is one of the highest growth rates in the city right mm-hmm. now. Uh, and it's also, by the way, there's the highest concentration of new Canadians who are living in the city of Hamilton right now. Those programs are available. They're going to shut that school down and bus kids to two right. schools, one of them right across the road here. This is not the downtown core. Yeah. And the other one is with this new school that they're building over by the stadium again. Why not just leave the ones you've already got? Absolutely. And that, and that's our message for sure about Central. Not only um, would you have extra busing, it would immediately lead to overcrowding at other schools and boundary changes to Nelson. So if Central closes, half your student population at Central goes to Aldershot, they'll need portables. Not the best learning environment for kids. The other half of students will go east to Nelson and then the boundary Boundaries for Nelson have to change so that kids that can walk there that are almost across the street from Nelson now go further down the street to Bateman. So everybody is saying, how is that? This is probably the most disruptive of all the potential options. It it negatively affects the most people at the most schools. Why is this even being considered? And, And part of that, you mentioned it earlier, is that there is a bias against old there's a bias against those schools that that have the good bones but maybe don't have the the fancy new architecture and the big open space. But, you know, people like uh, Mark Oldershaw were educated in that old space. You know, one of our Olympians. I, I spent one memorable year at KCVI uh, Collegiate in Kingston, also a downtown school. They produced the Tragically Hip. They produced Hugh Dillon. Um, I went to school with those guys. So... Our old schools are doing right by our students. Oh, they're, yeah. they're just fine. I, I mentioned when I was talking to some of the parent groups about that, I said Pearson should actually be a historically significant place. I mean, you know, a big plaque for Ryan Gosling right in the corner there. I mean, <laughs> That's I mean, right. you, you, no, a lot of great – you don't need a solarium to be educated. I mean, No, it, you it, don't. And, and you know, we were, we were talking about this, a group of parents last night, that our, you know, our uh, – uh, open collaborative space was the smoking area or the parking lot or the benches, you know, and even if you didn't smoke, you kind of gathered together. Students will find ways to gather. They will find ways to collaborate. We don't need to to artificially engineer this through architecture and, yeah, and close that. schools that don't have that space because there's also the cafeteria. That's a fabulous, creative, collaborative space. When I go in there, I see students huddled and talking and and doing exactly what they're doing in the newfangled buildings, and um, and they're just fine. Our students are getting great education. That's where I learned to play euchre in the cafeteria. Oh yes, many instead, a moon of euchre games instead of math class. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. Uh, 
but and but haven't we learned from an architectural standpoint at the municipal level that old is good that, that, that the preservation is is worth doing absolutely so i i'm a huge heritage advocate i sit on our city's heritage advisory committee where we've brought in property tax rebates for heritage we lose something as a community as a country if we don't remember our history and part of that memory is in our buildings we have to preserve that architecture and you know i've heard some people say well what if what if central closed as a high school but we kept the building well that's not good enough like uh, yes keep the building it's an important part of of what makes the fabric of a downtown it's an important memory piece it's it's amazing to walk in there and and to remember who walked those actual halls our veterans our our you know generations multi-generations of people there are history in those walls that cannot be replaced so i don't want the building kept on its own and and turned into a condo i want the building kept but i want it to be a learning environment i want it to be a high school and it needs to be a high school and we need to respect our older buildings because they give us much more than old bricks they give us memory they give us history they remind us where we came from we got about a minute left here uh and I know a lot of the frustration and anger is being directed at the at the boards of education, the trustees. And uh, uh, in fairness to them, they're kind of stuck in the middle here because it's not their policy. They're, they're simply being charged with the responsibility of carrying it out. This has got to be a discussion at Queen's Park to say maybe we need to remodel how we do this. Absolutely. I have great respect for the trustees. And, and they and our community are in a very difficult spot, uh, and it's political hot potato. It's, you know, they're having to enforce policies that are set by the province. When we go to the province, they say, no, your, your elected representatives will make that decision. We said enough of that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. An award-winning, of course, uh, journalist. She is the columnist and crime writer for the Hamilton Spectator, and she joins us on The Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Hi, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for your kind words, Bill. That was so nice. Well, I've noticed on uh, on Twitter a lot of other folks are echoing similar results. So you you are you are loved and well respected for what you do, and we appreciate the work that you do in this community, Susan. Oh, thank you so much. That's very kind. Now you're blushing, aren't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, very poignant piece in, in the spec today that you wrote. It says, I can't be the only one who suffered. And this is, of course, uh, in reference to uh, something you and I talked about some weeks ago when it was done here at the provincial level when the attorney general was here in Hamilton to make the announcement. But it's about the, the, the suffering and the impact that, that serving on juries can actually have for individual citizens. Right. It's it's a difficult thing being a juror at a at a trial. Um, and it's something that uh, that we just, you know, pluck people out of their regular day to day lives and um, and plot them down in the middle of something that they probably have never experienced before. Um, it's uh, it's an important part of our society. It's an important important um, uh, piece of our of our democracy, um, but it takes its toll on jurors. And up until recently, nobody was really talking about the toll that it takes. Let me ask you something from a personal standpoint. You've, you've been covering crime and, and covering trials for many many years, and. Uh, and I'm just going over the the you know the roster of some of the jurors and, and things that you've covered, and it, it's it's got it's tough on you. I mean, you and I have talked about that in the past, you know, and, and others that are there in the media are covering these things. But but after a while, you kind of know what to expect to a certain extent because you've been doing it for so long. But these are people that are really kind of thrust into this process, aren't they? They really are. I, I mean, um, you know, I hear and see 
terrible things when I cover a trial, but I've, I'm there by choice. Um, I've chosen to to be a, a crime columnist. I've chosen this path in my career. Um, and you're right, over the years, um, I've, I've learned um, what to expect. Uh, and I have supports available to me. I have a newsroom standing behind me and, and you know, editors who who care for me and um, you know, so I, I have a, um, I have a support system when it comes to dealing with those things, but jurors are, um, are picked randomly. Um, most jurors that I have spoken with have never even been inside a courthouse before, let alone sat through autopsy photos and horrible, um, evidence from, you know, witnesses to crimes. Uh, and they are just expected to um, to pay attention. They don't have the option of turning away, of closing their eyes. They need to, to watch and hear everything that unfolds in that courtroom. And then on top of all of that, they have this, this incredible um, duty to decide someone's fate, you know, their, their guilt or innocence. So we put a lot of, of expectations on our jurors. And, and for those of you in the media, yourself and, and so many others that we've talked about over the years that have covered some of these trials, and, and uh, you never become desensitized to it. The good ones, like yourselves, never do. But, I mean, you can sometimes you can see it coming, like, oh, this is going to be a rough day tomorrow. You know what they're going to be doing. And, and you, even though you haven't seen the, 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 the information yet or the, the stuff that's going to be presented, at least you have an idea what's going on. But uh, most of the time with these jurors, I mean, they're getting blindsided by this stuff. There's no way they can understand the the impact of what they're going to be seeing is going to have on them. That's true. Um, you're right. I mean, I, I usually have a, an idea of what I'm in for when I'm covering a trial. Um, sometimes that still doesn't lessen the, the impact of it when I actually you know, see the video or hear the witness or, or look at the photograph. So I can only imagine what it's like for a juror who's never been exposed to, to that sort of thing before. And um, often at the end of a trial, after the verdict, um, I do hear from, from jurors. I, I can't have any contact with them at all while the trial's going on, but it's, it's not uncommon for them to reach out to me afterwards and one of the things that I hear from them all the time is um, th- that it sticks with them, that it bothers them, that it has changed them. Um, How can it not? Yeah. Uh, well, th- that's it, right? Um, you know, people often ask me, Bill, how how do I stand writing about such terrible things all the time? And and um, and one of the things I say is, you know, when the day comes that this stuff doesn't bother me anymore, that's the day I know when, when it's time to, to change my, my beat and stop covering court and covering crime. Um, because it, the fact that it bothers me means that I still care, that, um, that it, I haven't become desensitized, that um, it hasn't just become another day at the office for me. And I think that's really important but um, the other side of that coin is that it's it's difficult, and you know I can I can tell you that um, you know whenever I, I'm out and about in, in Hamilton driving around our city, I um, see our community in terms of 
places I've written about. I see, you know, a building and know that I was there because someone was stabbed. I see a park and know that I was there because there was a body found there. Um, it, it stays with me forever. Um, but again, I have that support system around me because this is my job and, and um, this is what I've chosen to do that jurors until very recently haven't had that. How, what, what kind of reaction do you get as, as you talk to some of these jurors after the fact? You mentioned, obviously, that a lot of the stuff stays with them. But, but in, in covering these trials, Susan, you're, you're watching them as well. And, and the reaction to some of the stuff that they see that you figure is going to have an impact on them must be dramatic. It is. I mean, you see it um, in the courtroom often. Uh, it's, you know, I, I see jurors crying. I see um, jurors uh, trying to look away. I mean, it's, it's difficult when it's right there in front of you in a courtroom. Um, jurors sometimes ask for a break. Um, during difficult testimony, and judges are are pretty good at um, being aware of that, watching the jury for signs that someone's having a particularly difficult time, and you know we need to we need to take a break. Um, so there's all of that going on, but then you know I've had jurors tell me their stories about the impact it's had, the the sleeplessness. Um, uh, fear for their own safety, but even more so, I hear about fear for um, the safety of their family members. Um, you know, a juror at um, uh, who I wrote about today, actually, a juror from one of the Robert Badgero trials, um, uh, talking about being afraid for his wife to to go out um, at night. Um, because in the in the Badger case, Diane Rowendowitz was murdered uh, as she was walking home at night. So you know this this hyper um, sensitivity, hyper um, concern about safety, and then I also hear a lot from jurors about particular pieces of evidence that are just seared forever in their brain, and it's it's usually graphic evidence, um, things like uh, like autopsy photos, because these jurors have to, to look at autopsy photos. It's, it's part of the process of um, a murder trial, and they have no choice in that. They are, they are shown pictures of, um, of the deceased, sometimes still at the crime scene, sometimes in the morgue, and um, it can be very, very difficult. And by the way, this is not just restricted to jurors. I know that you wrote in the piece today that uh, they'd even uh, retired Justice Patrick Lesage, who uh, presided over the Bernardo trial, also was affected by this. Absolutely. He's been very public about this um, over the years. Uh, a very, very experienced uh, judge, um, clearly experienced because he was chosen to preside over one of the most uh, high-profile murder cases we've, we've had in our country, um, the Paul Bernardo case. And uh, he has spoken afterwards about being diagnosed with PTSD because of the evidence that he saw and heard at that trial. So you're absolutely right. If someone like, um, uh, you know, a justice, a, a judge, can uh, feel the effects and and suffer from it. Um, certainly, a juror who has no experience with that sort of thing um, is susceptible. 
when we had the announcement in town here some weeks ago with the Attorney General and ACFI uh, making the announcement about assistance for jurors, uh, that was welcomed, obviously, because of what we've just talked about here. But I was surprised to find out from your piece today, Susan, that there's no national policy. There's no national way to deal with this. It's kind of an ad hoc thing from province to province. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, it all seems so simple to me anyways. It, it, it just seems like a no-brainer that um, help should be made available to every juror, and yet it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, Ontario is actually ahead of, of most provinces on this front, um, and that's only since January when, uh, when, when the new legislation was introduced, um, giving jurors access to um, psychiatric and psychological care. So there are provinces where nothing is available. There are provinces where um, a judge has to specifically order help for jurors. There is, uh, in in British Columbia, um, at least six members of a jury have to want help in order for it to be made available. So if only only five members of a jury want it, then they're out of luck. you know, it, uh, it doesn't seem to me like offering um, uh, help to jurors who want it is, uh, you know, is extraordinary. It seems like it should be just routine. And, um, you know, it's the least we can do for these, these jurors. We, they're there because we have told them to be there. We don't even ask them. We tell them that this is their duty. And um, the least we can do is provide care for them afterwards. There's uh, something really important happening, though, and I'm glad you, you articulated this in the piece today, Susan, is there's a conversation going on now in different parts of the country, uh, not among lawmakers, but among the jurors themselves that are affected by this. And, and I know you've written about this in the past, that oftentimes when you go through a traumatic experience, like many of these jurors, or justices do, of course, that there's a there's a usually a, a, a reticence to talk about it. Uh, you kind of hold it in and try to deal with it yourself in your own way. Uh, but now that there seems to be almost a national dialogue about this, that that's got to be encouraging. I think it is. Um, uh, you know, a number of jurors have, have told me that they thought they were the only ones um, experiencing this kind of pain after um, after jury duty uh, because it hasn't been talked about very much. And and part of that is because um, juries are are somewhat secret. You know, um, we don't name jurors uh, usually unless they want to be identified after a trial. Um, There's nowhere you can go to just simply find a list of of all jurors who have ever sat on, on trials. And so it makes it difficult for them to even communicate amongst themselves. But um, you're right. I mean, there there now is this national conversation taking place where jurors are stepping up and saying publicly um, that it's hard and that they need help, and um, that's a that's a huge step. You know, I, I talked to a guy in my column today, Mike Ferrant, who um, some of your listeners may have seen interviewed elsewhere because he's he's become a um, a real public face for this issue. He he was a jury foreman for a a horrific murder trial in Toronto. He has been diagnosed with PTSD, and um, he is now sort of leading this charge to um, have some kind of help available all across the country for jurors. Well, and you referenced uh, Dave Kenyon, of course, too, who is the foreman at uh, one of the Bajero trials, the second Bajero trial. 
Uh, and, and we know, of course, from some of the conversations you and I have had about uh, some of the details that were elicited from that and the impact that that was going to have on them. And, and, and I think there's probably this, this overall sense of relief from some of these jurors at this stage, Susan, that, 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 as you said, they don't feel as if they're alone right now, that, hey, that guy in B.C. went through the same sort of thing that I went through in Hamilton or that somebody else did in yeah. Toronto. Exactly. There, there was kind of a neat moment um, a, a few days ago where uh, um, Mike Ferrant, uh has been in touch with me for a while now about this issue. And um, he, uh, he and I were talking about him going to Ottawa and lobbying for, um, for national legislation. And he asked me if I knew of any jurors that, that might want to help him out with this. So I was able to put him in touch with Dave Kenyon and from the Badger trial. And afterwards, both of them said to me, you know, we had so much in common. You know, here are two men who have, have never met. They live in different cities. But just by virtue of the fact that they were each, um, they both happened to be the, the foreman of their juries. And, um, you know, they they have so much to talk about and so many connections. Um, and, you know, now they're talking about um, uh, the possibility of some kind of a peer support group for for jurors. Um, juries during a trial tend to be very tight-knit, and, you know, they're spending lots of time together, and they have each other to lean on. But afterwards, they go back to their own lives. And um, so these guys are talking about, you know, maybe maybe we can draw jurors together a year, two years, three years after their, their trials um, to continue to give them support and to continue to have dialogue. There's uh, some encouraging news, too, for people that are, are looking for some political solution to this as well. There is an existing bill that's uh, that's being uh, debated in Ottawa right now. It's Bill uh, C-211, as you've talked about. Now, that specifically is about first responders, military as well. But there's hope from what you're writing here, Susan, that they might amend that to also include jurors, people that are in this system. That's right. That's that's the work that Mike Ferrant is doing. He is um, hoping to have jurors added into that bill. And uh, he's going to Ottawa sometime soon uh, to address the bills, um, the committee that's considering the bill. And he wants to present them with 12 letters written by 12 jurors from across Canada, each of them talking about their own experience and um, and explaining why this kind of help is is so necessary for jurors. And of course, Dave Kenyon from from Hamilton from the Badger trial um, is writing one of those letters. So it's uh, it's kind of neat that Hamilton has a real role to to play in this. Um, you know, Dave Kenyon, uh, the fact that the Ontario um, the new um, legislation in Ontario to help jurors was actually unveiled here in Hamilton, and Hamilton's courthouse was chosen because of the Tim Bosma trial and um, and uh, all that the jury had to go through on that trial. And you know, the the Hamilton spectators played a role. Um, columns that that I wrote around the Bosma trial and and that jury. Um, had some influence on people like Mike Ferrant. So, um, so you know, we've been talking about it here in in Hamilton, maybe um, you know earlier than some other places in Canada have been. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.